you're a guest, we are journeying through the book of Genesis here in this year, and uh, it will end basically when Advent starts, but um, we are continuing on in that story, and really last week was, was part one of the sermon when we talked about uh, Gen- Genesis really six through eight, three chapters, we talked about this universal flood that was really God's judgment on the evil of mankind. We had become so evil that God really had no other choice but to start over. And he started over with eight people. Eight people, and it was Noah and his three sons and all of their wives, along with two of every animal uh, that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. And they, they got on this boat, and we believe as Christians that this is a real story, that this isn't just rainbows and unicorns, it's actually just a rainbow. And so it's real because Jesus thought it was real and Peter thought it was real and Isaiah thought it was real. All throughout the scriptures, you have the ancient people believing this to be a real story. And so today, if you could just picture yourself being that person or that family that was chosen by God to repopulate the earth. Like this is the thing that apocalyptic movies are made out of. Um, And we start to think about that, and we start to look at Noah, and we look at what he's done in Genesis chapter 9, and we may start to think, what is God up to? What is Noah up to? What is really happening here? But I would just say, like, as you get off the ark with Noah, that's really what I want you to do. I want you to get off the ark with Noah. Last week, the the invitation was to get into the ark with Noah and, and start to kind of eavesdrops on their conversation about the kind of God that would flood the earth. Now the earth... And the flood is made new through water. And now really the question is, you know, what, what is God valuing in this new world? This week I finished a book called The Intentional Father by John Tyson. If you're a dad in here, go buy it today. It may not be available. Put it on your wish list and make it happen. Um, because it's that good. I don't, I don't usually put my name behind like something like that, but it's that good. But I finished it this week, and i got to go back through it because it's one of those books that you got to work back through. And as I, as I finished it, I was reminded of, of, of really kind of the kind of thing and the kind of, uh, of new values that God is putting on the earth with Noah. You see, John Tyson, when he writes this book, he writes it as a way of like, how do you disciple How do you intentionally put a a path of formation for your up-and-coming young son? That's the book. It's very good if you have daughters as well. It just gets your mind thinking about the things that you could do. And he wanted to have his son to have four family values and four masculine values as he left the nest. And those four family values were vision, passion, discipline, and risk. And the four masculine masculine values were wisdom, self-control, courage, and justice. These weren't just things that he wanted his son to recite, but to personify in this new world that his son was going to embark upon called the rest of his life. And I think it's a great invitation for us to start to understand, like, this is the kind of thing that God is doing in Genesis 9 through these three main headings that we're going to unpack together. God's putting before us Three core values, it doesn't mean that these are the only ones, but these are just some of the top ones as Noah gets off the boat because core values set trajectories. They prioritize what you should say yes to, what you should say no to, but more importantly, they define culture. They define culture. So in the story of Genesis, now Noah is leaving the nest 
And at 600 plus years old, he has been, again, selected to start a new world. And what kind of world will God define with these values? Will they be any different? I'm compelled to ask, what kind of values is he implementing on the earth? Are they any different than when he did so with Adam and Eve? And and what does it really mean for me, and those are the things, that's the thought process behind today's sermon. So again, there's three parts. There's one big takeaway in each part. That's what I want to focus on as we continue on in this narrative of Genesis, particularly kind of buttoning up this story about Noah here in our first part. So as we go through, right, what are God's core values in this new world that he's remade? Core value number one, God values life. He values life. In, in, in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, he values life. And he, he wastes no time doing the same thing he did in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28 when he issues the cultural mandate that Josue preached on long ago. When he says, you're made in my image and I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. There was order there in, in the subjugation of the whole world that, that humans male and female, would rule over these creatures and all of creation. It's one of the first things that God says to Noah when he gets off the ark. And God blessed Noah, chapter 9, verse 1, and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He then repeats it in verse 7, be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. God is telling his people, go, get busy, and fill this place. But if you notice, something is missing. This order to subdue the earth isn't there. To put it in order isn't there. And I have to ask myself, what is God doing? God loves life so much that he didn't leave it in our hands anymore. Instead, what we found in Genesis 3 is that instead of ruling over the earth and ruling over creation, creation then rebels against God's natural order and we submit to Creation, And now we're in this cycle of submitting and worshiping creation over and over and over again as a result of the fall when the serpent came in and tricked Eve and Adam was sitting there. That was a reversal of God's order. I don't know if you've been watching any Olympics. I already told you that I do that basically this entire season. But there's this Jurassic Park uh, preview. And all the people are back. And I'm really excited. I've, I don't really like Jurassic Park, but I liked the first one when I was a kid. And I think I'm going to be disappointed by this one. But I'm going to go see it anyways. Because Jeff Goldblum is in it. And he's like, we're no longer, we're no longer ruling over creation. We're, we're, we're subject to it. And that's exactly right. It didn't take dinosaurs in a movie screen to help us figure that out. It just takes the Bible to help us understand. We are subject to that which God wanted us to rule, rule over. And yet here in Genesis 9, he doesn't leave that to us. He puts a fear in the animals so that they won't try to rule over us. If you think about this covenant that God is making with Noah, he doesn't just make it with Noah and his family. He makes it with Noah and all of creation. And when he does so, um, he's giving us a little hint of what the world was like before the flood. That not only were humans contaminated perhaps by demons, but also all of creation was so jacked up that they also were in rebellion. And that's, again, why they were judged as well, which is why this covenant comes. And it's not just for Noah and humans, but for all creation and every beast of the earth. That God values life so much that we'll get to this point. 
but he promises never to do what he just did again. You see, God values life, and therefore, he puts this fear in animals so that we can't mess this up. I don't know if you ever go hiking or hunting with your kids, but, but when, um, when I go with Moses in particular, my seven-year-old son, he always wants to ask the question, okay, now, are sharks afraid of us? Not that we see sharks when we're hiking, because that would be weird, but are sharks afraid of us? Yeah, man, sharks are afraid of us. Okay, what about the bobcat? Yep, bobcat's afraid of us. How about the deer? Yep. The squirrel, yep. The rabbit, yep. The hog, yep. They're all afraid of us. Why? Well, that's what God put into the hearts of animals after the flood. And what he's really asking is, is this a safe place? Is this a safe place for me? And I think the same should be said for us. Could you imagine a world where the animals weren't afraid of us? But they are afraid of us. This place is safe for us. It is a place that God remade for us because he values life. And not only does he value life with, with animals... Um, but he also values life with humans. But before I get there, I need to just kind of discuss this one little rabbit trail. Uh, for a long time, I remember being in seminary, them asking us, can you eat a medium rare steak? And you might be thinking, what does that have to do with Genesis 9? Well, the Bible says that you can eat now these animals. Uh, before the flood, apparently humans were vegetarians. After the flood, God gives uh, not just fear into the heart of animals, but also gives them as part of our menu, praise God and amen, and this is not a prohibition against medium-rare steaks. Another praise God and amen, because I like a medium-rare steak. This is, amen. I need a heartier amen than that. I don't know who that was, but thank you. But this is not a prohibition against that. Instead, it is a prohibition against savagery, that we would just go around and kill an animal and just eat it right there, that there would be blood in that kind of meat, because that's the kind of world that this was written in. The pagans around them were ultimately all about this type of thing. If you start thinking about cultic worship, pagan worship, it all revolves around really savagery and blood. And God is absolutely prohibiting that kind of life. Instead, he's moving on to say, it's not just the animals that I'm valuing and putting in order, but I'm also putting in order the value that you should have on life. If you read with me, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is a totally uh, clarified understanding of what happened with Cain and Abel. You remember Cain murdered Abel and he was given grace and mercy and he wasn't and he knew that there would be other people that would want to try and kill him. But God extends grace to Cain and what we found is that generations later we had a world and an earth that needed to be destroyed because of sin and now that judgment is in man's hands, humans' hands to take life for life. So this is where we get capital punishment right out of Genesis chapter 9. Governments are, have done a lot of good things out of Genesis 9 and a lot of bad things out of Genesis 9. And, and I don't know how you, how you define that kind of thing, but it's right here in Genesis 9 that God would then say, hey, if you take a life, your life must be exacted from you. And you might be asking yourself, well, if God values life so much, why is that his punishment that someone else should die? It's a good question. It's one that I've asked this week. But God values life so much that he will cut off whatever is causing death. It's like amputation. I've never been in that sort of decision, like if I needed to amputate. But if you were, you would make the very difficult decision to cut off the member of you that might cause your own death. 
That would be a very difficult decision. Some of us probably have loved ones or friends or family members that have had to make that decision for one reason or another. And that's exactly what I think God does with this type of punishment, with this type of explanation about life for life, that if it's not going to value the things that I'm going to value, then it's got to go. And do you know that God wants you to have the same sort of vigilance around the things that cause death in your life? No, you may not be thinking the same way that, that this is thinking, like, oh, life for life. Well, the people that are causing me difficulty, they got to get out of my life. No, I'm talking about the difficulty of sin in your life, the, the true enemy of death in your soul. You see, Romans 8 would say this, right? Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, and then 13. I want you to just think about this, not just with capital punishment, because I think that misses the point, particularly with what we can take away from Genesis 9, but this, like any threat to life must be put to death. Genesis 8, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 6 and 7 and 13, should come on the screen. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. If you leave here, or if you spent your last week thinking about ways to sin, the Bible says clearly it's death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. If you set your mind on ways to honor God, it brings life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. It's his enemy. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We skip down to 13. We get this explanation. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if... By the Spirit, that's His power, that resurrection power that we just sang about, that He's resurrecting me. If by the resurrecting Spirit of life, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a great parallel for us in our spiritual life that the things that cause us death have got to be put to death. They've got to be put away. They've got to be cut out of our lives. Colossians 3 then would say this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, what's earthly in me, Paul? So glad you asked. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is serving a false god, idolatry. These things are causing death in us, and they have to to go, just like Genesis 9 says, the things that cause death in the world have got to go. And so the question I have as a big picture on this first thing that God is valuing of life is what have you identified as threatening to your life? So you students that just went through one weekend, you just got this big like injection of God's spirit into your soul, Right? This big, like, you can come off of those experiences as like a high, and you start to go, okay, man, well, I'm just never going to sin again. Okay, well, give it like five minutes. We will. The question is, what's going to keep us steadied over the long run for the next 80 years of your life, 75 years of your life? It's this constant battle by the Spirit's power to put to death the deeds of the body. Will you cut off? Will you take out all the things that you like? We've had this conversation more, uh, before about social media. But it may not be just social media. Maybe the things in your own heart, these desires that you may want for other people to have another person's life, to, oh, I wish I just had that, and that's why I want Snapchat. 
I wish I had all those friends, and that's why I want all that social media stuff. It's covetousness, and the Bible calls it idolatry. Maybe God has put you in your position where no one knows your name for a reason. You can make an influence. What kind of an influence would you make with no name except the name of Jesus being your banner and your motivator? What is threatening to your life? What kind of war, friends, will you wage against sin? What kind of war will you wage against the flesh? You see, sin is waging a war against your soul, and friends, it must die. It says, John Owen said it long ago, either you, be, you better be putting uh, uh, your flesh to death, or it will put you to death. That was a bad translation of John Owen, I apologize. But nonetheless, it's true, go look it up. That's the first thing that God values is life. The second thing that God values is covenant. We don't use this word enough. In this next section of chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, we see God establishing a covenant with Noah, with Noah's family, and with all of creation. You see, this idea of covenant is something, it is the basis in which God establishes all relationships with humans. God does not relate to you outside of a covenant. So it's important that we understand what a covenant is. Covenant is different than contract. A contract is, uh, it's this, right? It's this agreement between two parties to reach a common goal. I have heard that exact definition to define covenant. That's not covenant. It's a contract. A contract is an agreement between two parties to reach a common goal. This is, the emphasis here is on transactions. This is what you do with your cell phone and with your, um, your fiber, and your car, and your mortgage. I get to live in this house if I pay this mortgage. It's this for that. It's a contract. Covenants don't work that way. Covenants are different, especially when it talks about God making a covenant with sinful people because he knows they're not going to hold up their end of the bargain. Thank God he does not relate with us through contracts, but through covenant. It is a promise, I just I redid this definition to make it simple this week. It is a promise of provision and protection. It is a promise of provision and protection. Dot, 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 no matter what. And this really should be what characterizes our marriages. This is what we said at the altar, or what you will say at the altar one day, Lord willing, that like for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. You see what's being said there? Doesn't matter what comes. And I would love to add in faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Because I think there's a time where we just get to the point where we're like, oh, well, Jesus said that there's an out here and so I might just take that out. But it was not that way from the beginning. Instead, it is to represent the kind of love which God loves us. And he doesn't walk out on us when we're unfaithful, thank God. Instead, he continues to pursue us as sinners loved by a beautiful and present God. God is a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God, really no matter what. God made his promise of protection and provision, and the content of that is that he will never flood the earth again. You might be thinking, like, what is the big deal? Well, for Noah, this was a big deal. Can you imagine that it's probably the first time that, that it ever rained was when Noah experienced those first few raindrops? 
probably the first time that it ever rained on the earth and however many years were the earth uh, created. And so if you can imagine Noah, if he gets off the ark and say some days go by or a month or a year and it starts raining again and he hasn't heard from God, he might freak out a bit. Especially if he took some of that wood from the ark to build a fire when he got off. He might start freaking out that he's got to get back on the boat, but God practically reminds him, I'm not going to do what you just went through again. It will never happen again. And so you could imagine the trauma and the trigger that rain probably had for Noah and his family. You can probably imagine that a little bit. And so this is a great assurance that God has not forgotten about them and that he will remember his covenant. And just in case we have forgotten, there's this sign in the sky of covenant, verses 12 and 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. This is for you, y'all. This is for us. Verse 17, he goes on to repeat basically the same thing. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is in the earth. He puts a bow in the clouds. We know it as a rainbow, but rainbow actually isn't in the Bible, just a bow. And to the first readers, they would have read an instrument of war. They would have read a weapon. God put his his bow, like bow and arrow, in the clouds as a sign of peace. It's weird. Why is there an instrument of war in the clouds as a sign of peace? Because what we start to see when we dig through the literature is that God had waged war on sin and on death by flooding the earth And now that war was over and won and he made sure that he could tell the whole world that he was done with that kind of war. And he hung up his bow as if a warrior came home and hung up their bow. Just say, the war is over and now peace to my people. It's been paid for. It's been done. Now peace to my people. And God intentionally hung the bow in the heavens in such a way that he now, if you, if you look at the bow, it is now pointing towards heaven. That's where you would point it if you were shooting it. If the bow is in the clouds, you would point it towards heaven if you were shooting it upwards. It's not pointed down, it's pointed up. And he hung it in such a way that the, he is the wounded party as we shoot arrows of rebellion and sin against the God who now declares peace. This is a great sign for us, not just that God will not flood the earth, but it points forward to a time when the penalty for all rebellion, for all sin, was paid for, not by hanging a bow up in the clouds, but by hanging his son Jesus on a cross. And it was there that he made peace. It was there that he made peace for sinners. It's The rainbow is this beautiful promise of protection and provision as it points to the new covenant. The new covenant is what we'll celebrate when we do communion. But it was talked about by the prophet Jeremiah when he said this in Jeremiah chapter 31 through 33. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
God's people are about to be put in exile. They're about to have all kinds of trouble on them. And he promises this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. No, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband. If you look at this beautiful language, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. It's no longer written down on tablets of stone. It's now written on our, on our hearts. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God values covenant. And so I have to ask, really, as we wrap up this point, do your relationships, your, your most foundational, trusted, and important relationships look more like a contract or more like a covenant? Are they centered around what people can do for you or on what God has done for you? Are they more transactional or are they more trusting? Are they more rooted in behavior or are they rooted in the kind of promises that God has given you? Is your marriage, does your attitude change when your spouse doesn't behave the way that you want them to? No one's saying anything? I'll take that as a, okay, I'll just move on, pastor, we'll be fine. Have you covenanted yourself to the ultimate good of your spouse no matter what? Or have you simply contracted yourself to some sort of, if you do this, then I'll do that. If you do the dishes, then I'll be nice to you. Or it gets much more sadistic. How about your neighborhood or your society? Do you merely love those people who love you? Jesus calls that tax collector love. That's the kind of love that tax collectors do. You just love the people that love you. That's easy. How about the people that can't do anything for you? How about the people that hurt you and wound you and ignore you, and yet you know you're, you just need to love them? Will we? Or will we simply just fall into practicality, convenience, and whatever we enjoy? I'm fighting against chasing a rabbit about neighborhood groups, and so now I've mentioned it, and now we must go there. Be careful, friends, that we don't start prioritizing enjoyment of one another, that we don't get into the formation of one another unto Christ. You can do both, but let's not ultimately prioritize convenience for community because you know what convenience does to community? Sucks the life right out of it. you got to sacrifice yourself and covenant yourself to other people for their good beyond what's convenient for you. All right. Friendships. What do you base your friendship on? Do you, do you pursue mutual interests? I mean, hobbies are good, but they're, they're only going like, to bring you so far. Will you pursue the flourishing of another? The formation unto Jesus of another? With your church, if you're here and you're trying to figure out if this is your place, the partnership class is coming up, be, get used to a lot more conversation like that. But truly, as you choose a church, covenant yourself to a committed, what we call committed partnership here. But if you're here and you're a partner, let's just be reminded, it is a covenanted, beautiful, committed relationship with one another for each other's good. It's not, I'm going to pay membership dues so that you will give me what I want. We need to be reminded of this. Consumerism is the air we breathe. 
That's not what a church is. We are, we are partnered. We are linked up together in the power of the gospel by the power of the Spirit so that not only we be mutually formed unto Christ, but we do the thing that Jesus said to do, and that's make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to obey. We got one amen. He's in. But look, this is the kind of relationship that God is calling us to because this is the thing that he valued, covenant a promise of protection and provision, covenant. The third thing that he values in this new world is dignity. Dignity. That's interesting. Wasn't really expecting that one. Dignity. The final scene of Noah's uh, disembarkment of the ark is not as bright as the first two. And so what do we see? We see Noah planting a vineyard. I did a little research this week. It takes about three years for a vineyard to produce fruit. Now, I don't know if that's what it was like in this recreated world, but in our world today, that's about what it takes. It's about three to five years for a vineyard to start producing fruit of the vine, and then there's a fermentation process of making wine, which would have been a few weeks. So I want you to hear in this, there's an intentionality here on Noah's part. He didn't just, just slip into drunkenness one night. He created a vineyard, God gave fruit of that vineyard, and Noah abused the fruit of that vineyard. And he got drunk. And we might think to ourselves, like, what is going on in this particular situation? And I'll tell you, like, the, the commentaries are all over the place on this one. But what you see is that Noah planted a vineyard. He gets drunk in his tent. He is doing it privately. And so I just want us to read this or just to help us understand, like, yeah, 20 and 21. Let's just read this. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The next verse says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his brother and told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on them, laid it on their both, uh, both of their shoulders, and walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. What is going on in this little section of Scripture? Well, I think before I get to that, I have to just kind of warn us. Let's be careful not to condemn Noah. Uh, we're him. Right? Um, I don't know how you react to the death of a loved one, but I'm going to bet you you're tempted to deny Jesus at some point in that process. I don't know what you, how you react to, to trauma in your life and triggers in your life, but I'm going to bet you there's a temptation there to just walk away, even if just momentary. And so Noah just got off the ark. He saw all of humanity just perish. And it's a pretty lonely place. And now for three plus years, he's had his, his family, and that's been nice. But I also don't know what it's like if you've ever been used by God significantly, been on a spiritual high, so to speak, and now you just got to enter back into regular old life of just plowing, just tending a vineyard, and no one knows my name. I haven't heard from God in a while, and it's just been a little lonely. You will be tempted to pick up the fruit of the earth and make it your ultimate thing. We all will. When God's light seems the dimmest, His voice seems less than a whisper, when our Father lets go of our hand, He demonstrates His trust in us. 
Don't get it twisted. When you haven't heard from him in a while, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a good thing because he's trusting you with the last word that he gave you. So just walk faithfully. It's like a dad who's teaching their kid how to ride a bike. At some point, the kid just goes, don't let go of me, don't let go of me. And they don't even know they've been let go of. And they're riding, and it's beautiful. And the dad or the mom, I could never get Moses to ride his bike. But my wife gets out there for five seconds. Brother is riding his bike. He's like, bro, what's going on out here? Why do you hate me so much, Moses? It was beautiful, celebrating. You let go of that kid's bike, and God is in very similar ways letting go of you, trusting you. And in those moments, the enemy will come in and whisper lies. He doesn't care about you. You haven't heard from him in how long? He's not going to talk to you again. He's not going to use you like that again. All kinds of lies in those moments. But when, when our Father lets go of our hand, let us not make the mistake of coming up with some other perverted understanding of who he is, but let us trust what we last heard however long ago it was. So this word that you were just given this weekend, students, hold it, cultivate it, let it produce a fruit in you that you are welcomed like a son or a daughter into the kingdom of God. That's the kind of God that we serve, a father who longs to be reconciled with sinners. Don't ever let that go. I'm assuming that's something that you heard out of Luke 15. Perfect. It's amazing what happens when the Bible gets involved. All right, a couple of myths, because I know we've got to end. A couple of myths of, of this passage that we've got to clear up, right? First, just inherently, wine is not evil. Some of us um, don't drink at all. Cool, don't drink. I'm not asking you to. But don't condemn those that do, and vice versa. Because wine is not the problem here. It's the abuse of the, of the fruit of the vine that's the problem here. It's drunkenness, which is a sin, not drinking in and of itself. The second thing that I think is more important for us is that there is no such thing as a private sin. There is no such thing as a sin that does not affect other people. So whatever you're doing behind closed doors... That's going to affect other people. Number one, it affects your relationship with God. Your, the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. When we sin habitually like that, we get separated from God, whether it be through intimacy or you're actually separated from him and you don't have a relationship with him. That's what sin does. It affects your relationship. There's no such thing as an isolated, private sin. Instead, what we find from Noah's life is that you could be in your private tent sinning maybe with your wife who could have been there. We don't know. And ultimately, it gives occasion for other sins. If you just read what I read, you saw that Ham, which is one of Noah's sons, looked into the tent. Again, we don't know really what's going on here. There's a lot of debate. Forgive the language that I'm about to use, but it's written in biblical books, so we're just going to use it. There's all sorts of debate about what happens in this tent with Ham. That he went in and he castrated his dad when he was drunk. That's an actual like, legitimate thing that people think. That he sodomized his dad that he lay with his mother. These are all things that, we, that people are starting to think about in regards to like, man, what is going on in this tent? I think a lot of that is a reach. I think instead what's more important is that the Hebrew language, the word here for Ham saw his dad, means that he didn't accidentally see him. It is an intentional searching out for his dad and his sin. 
And what does he do as he intentionally, it's like a voyeurism type of a thing. Like he's waiting for his dad to mess up and then keeps his eye on him, almost like a aha. And what does he do when he sees his dad sin? If God values dignity, and that's our big takeaway from this, he exposes his dad's sin. And his brothers, on the other hand, do everything they can to make sure their dad has, their dignity, has his dignity and his honor. And so again, as we end, this is a great question for us. Are we people of Ham? Are we people of Japheth and Shem? You see, Shem and Japheth took great care to cover Noah's nakedness. They walked backwards so that they didn't see their dad naked, and they put the garment over him. Noah awakens, he knows what's happened, and he curses Ham's descendants that are Canaan, uh, Canaan, Canaan, easy for me to say. If you read out of Genesis 10, which is basically how we're going to cover Genesis 10, so if you're looking for like some awesome sermon next week out of Genesis 10, this is it. You ready? If you read through that, that passage, you see the, the descendants of Ham, this cursed son of Noah. And who are his descendants? Egypt. Babylon, okay, Canaan, the Canaanites who, who led Israel astray to serve after the Baals and the Asherahs over and over and over again. You see this line being totally destructive to the line of Israel, either enslaving them, pushing them out, exiling them, you name it, and it's that line. You see Sodom, you see Gomorrah, you see the Ninevites, you see all these types of, of, of cities and, and nations being truly coming right out of Ham and Canaan. But what's the lesson here, right? God knows that there is sin hidden in our hearts right now. He wants us not to sin, but he also knows that we're prone to wander, prone to rebel against him, and that our heart is continuously evil just like it was before the flood. But he also knows that we're going to be sinned against. And I think for the lesson with Ham and Japheth and Shem, what you can take away from that is that ultimately this, y'all, and especially for y'all young ones, but for anybody young in the faith, your spiritual heroes are going to fall. A lot of deconstruction in the world today about the church. And a lot of it has to do with an idolatry of humans propping pastors and leaders up to a position they don't belong in. So that when they mess up, now if they continuously mess up, they never repent, that's one thing. That needs to be reckoned with. But when they make mistakes or they get drunk in their tent with their wife or whatever it may be, and we go out looking for that sin, that's something a little bit different. Your spiritual heroes will fall. Your dad, your mom, going to mess up. So really the question for us, are we going to be a people of Shem and Japheth or are we be a people of Ham that go and look to expose the sins of others or will we cover it up? Cover it up the way that Jesus has covered up our sins with, a, with, 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 with beauty and a multitude of sins are covered up with love. We are prone to wander, but we also will be hurt. We will be disappointed. And when we are hurt, when we are disappointed, when we are sinned against, I'm just wondering what our reaction is. 
Is our reaction, again, in the line of Ham, we're ready to expose someone, or like Japheth and Shem, where we're eager to cover? When we see the sins or indiscretions of another, are we quick to expose them, and, or are we quick to protect that person's dignity? When someone confesses their sin to you, do you then run to somebody else and go, oh yeah, you know they're struggling with? When someone shares their story with you in their neighborhood group, in your neighborhood group, do you go, oh yeah, well, they're dealing with that? Or are you quick to cover? You see, the beauty here as we end is our God who knows all things has not the heart to expose you. Praise God. He has not the heart to expose our sin, but to cover it. For love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't pretend it's not there. It acknowledges the presence of sin and intentionally assures the sinner they are covered by grace. Pointing others to to things like rainbows, which point to God's promise to protect and to provide for the weary and the wary. He has covered over and removed your sin by the blood of Jesus. Let that rainbow remind you of that, that Jesus was exposed on your behalf so that you could be covered over with his goodness, with him being that true and greater garment being placed over our sin. And he hangs above the earth, not in a rainbow, but on the cross, despised and shamed so that he could cover you. So he could bring you near. He now is this sign of peace. That God didn't hang up the bow to remind us forever of the peace that we have that Noah had. But he he hanged that bow and he hanged his son Jesus on a cross in the sky to remind us that he himself became our peace. Reconciling sinner with a holy God and bringing us near. Let's pray together. Lord, as we finish up Genesis 9 and look to the Tower of Babel next week, we are reminded that every sign in the sky that we may see is pointing forward to this beautiful covenant that you have made with us by your son Jesus. That in a moment when we go get our kids and we bring them back in here for communion, we're not rushing them into some sort of ritual. Instead, we're reminding them, we're hoping that they would see the thing that we see in these elements. That as believers, we trust that this is the new covenant, just like you said. It's a new promise of protection and provision in your son, Jesus. So would you help us remember that, not just in a moment when we do communion, but through song? Would you help us remember that every promise Every prophecy finds their yes and amen in Jesus. And ultimately, this promise of peace over sinners, this promise of uh, of provision and protection over Noah and his family and over all creation finds their ultimate promise in Jesus. So as we respond, as we get our kids, as we bring them back in, Lord, let it be in our hearts to understand and believe Your posture towards your people is good. Though we may wander, though we may run, though we may rebel, you're calling us to pursue the things that you have pursued, and that is promises of protection, of provision, of life, and a life of covering up the sins of others just as you have done 
with us, that we would truly be a people that forgive one another, that love one another, not as the tax collectors do, but as you do, wholly sacrificing ourselves for the betterment of others. Help us, Lord, remember these things. Help us, Lord, sing with these promises in our heart for a good and gracious and present God. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.